Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist and the final interview of Irish Month. Today I'm joined by Andrew Dorman, a PhD candidate at Dublin City University, whose research examines the experience of the soldier in Ireland in the 18th century. He's also the recipient of an Irish Research Council scholarship and is actually a pretty good comedian. But no, that isn't a comment on the quality of his research. Andrew, it's great to have you on the show, um, despite having just roasted you in the intro. How are you doing? That's fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm just glad I now know how to pronounce your podcast name. <laughs> yeah, um, soft C. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, it ends up being Napoleonicist, um, which which sounds a little bit peculiar, but we, we won't go there. It's more of a Josephine podcast, I feel. Yes. Let's take the, the radical approach of starting at the beginning. Um, so what's the nature of the force deployed in Ireland in, in the sort of early 18th century, perhaps even, even earlier? Because I know you, you told me that you want to uh, take us all the way back to 1690, which is going to enrage some of our listeners. I know. I mean, I'm dragging the Napoleonic listeners right back to the 1600s. But uh, to, to understand the situation in Ireland, you do have to go back that far. I mean, arguably, you could go back a little bit further, but I'll, I'll stop at 1690, 1691, because that's the end of what's known as the Williamite War. Well, Williamite War or War of James II, depending on where you go. It's a sideshow of the War of the League of Augsburg, which is going on in Europe. But uh, this obviously follows... Uh, William of Orange coming over, kicking James II out. He flees to Ireland, subsequently to France. But most of this conflict is fought on Irish soil. It's very bloody. It's quite short, quite sharp. And it culminates at the Siege of Limerick with the Irish army being told either you can stay or you're, you can and will disarm you or you can go to France. So most of them flee to France. So for the new authorities, they are just coming out of quite a bitter conflict in which you had Catholics 
uh, supporting James and Protestants typically supporting William. There were obviously exceptions to that. And the concern is that there will be another Catholic insurrection. And the, another more legitimate concern is that you will have a French invasion. Uh, to reinstate James because Louis XIV was fairly committed to supporting the Jacobite cause and he also, uh, I believe, actually, when James eventually dies, he publishes support for his son as well. Now this is meaningless, but it's still, from a Protestant perspective, a genuine threat to their sort of, uh, uh, sort of assets in Ireland. So to this end, it's decided that Ireland would basically host 12,000 soldiers at any given time. And this is probably one of the largest deployments of soldiers in Ireland. I think you might have slightly higher during uh, the 1920s. And again, during the 798 rebellion, there's a mass uh, distribution of soldiers. But typically, this is, this is definitely up there in terms of size. Uh, they're going to be housed in a modern barracks network, and this is something that's often overlooked. Ireland has the most widespread and modern barrack network uh, in the world at this stage, arguably. And its primary objective is to defend against French invasion, protect Protestant interests, and then as sort of a secondary, it's designed to suppress potential Catholic uprisings. It coincides with the implementation of the penal laws, but it's not necessarily the sort of uh, MO of the soldiers to implement these laws. It's more to uh, be at the beck and call of the authorities that they needed, but the primary thing is to be the defense against invasion. So you've got 12,000 men in Ireland, and these, this will last as a separate organization until the Act of Union. These are paid for by Dublin Castle. So this isn't British army in Ireland, it's the, army, it's the Irish army in, a, in essence, or an army in Ireland. Um, and as I said, paid for, housed, all within its own establishment. And it's, as the century progresses, it sort of, it turns into this more barracks for the empire. Soldiers are kept here and then dispersed as and when they're needed elsewhere. And that's sort of its uh, more imperial objective. So on the smaller scale, on a sort of a strategic level in Ireland, it's to protect against French invasion, but then on an imperial strategic level, it's a barracks. Why house them in barracks and the reason I ask that is because that's quite unusual and quite advanced for the time if you look at what happens across much of Europe um, you find that barracks aren't really a thing um, they have to kind of be designed particularly during the Napoleonic era um, and th there are lots of kind of conversations about what is and isn't appropriate within a, within a barrack environment so why the focus on barracks so early on? Well, part of it is to do with the need for a wide sort of suppression level across the country. And if you can disperse regiments, but not have them billeted with, you know, the population, but in separate barracks, you can put them in the countryside and they won't go wandering, I suppose. So there's that element to it. So you have lots of barracks, which have now since been converted into things like coach houses and pubs, because Ireland. Um, but a lot of these old like B&Bs and stuff dotted around the countryside used to be barracks. So there's that side of it. It's the casting a wide net and hoping to suppress as much as possible. But also, this comes back to the fact that a established army is a very new phenomenon. I mean, you're talking, if you want to go back to maybe the English Civil War, but really it's the um, sort of 17, or 1670s, 80s, where the British, or 60s, 60s, I suppose, where the British army really starts to uh, set itself as a permanent force. And there was a lot of anti-army feeling. So why not try this out in Ireland, where I guess we can put it down to suppressing Catholics 
and use it as a test bed and it seemed to work. I mean, the Dublin barracks is now Collins barracks in the center of the city. It's one of the nicest buildings in the city. Um, and then you've got barracks in all the major urban areas. And as I said, also in the rural areas too. So keeps the soldiers in check, you know where they are, it's easier to manage and also uh, keeps them healthier to a degree too. Um, Ireland has a different disease climate, so you want them out of the field as much as possible. So that, that's a factor in it too. And, and how does all of this change over time then? Mm. So as, the, as the, you go through the century, infrastructurally speaking, going back to the barracks quickly, you have more permanent buildings being built. Um, but in terms of their role, it does change, their practical role, because as I said, from a grand strat strategic perspective, it doesn't really change. It's always going to be there to prevent invasion. The French only actually land, if we exclude the 1790s, once in 1760, uh, and they capture a town called Carrickfergus and are then repelled. It's quite embarrassing for all concerned, including the French. <laughs> but for from the more real sort of what they're up to from 1690 to about 1730 1740s most of what the army is doing is they're being strong men for the revenue commission so they are aiding in tax collection they're overturning whiskey stills they're tracking down smugglers deserters they're trying to prevent uh recruitment for the french army this kind of thing uh now it's not particularly popular work but it is at least stable so there's an understanding that the army will be the guards of captured goods, for example, and there's that degree of connection with the society, I guess. Now, this changes as you progress into the century because you come across more instances of urban unrest and agitation and rural agitation as well. But you also have the army being increasingly called upon elsewhere. As I said, it was a barracks for empire at this stage. So uh, war of the Austrian secession, the garrison is gutted. You, you lose nine regiments. Most of them are sent abroad. Uh, I think they go to UK and then onto the Indies or into continental Europe. So you've got a now depleted garrison having to deal with increased unrest. So that's where you have a lot of the clashes starting to emerge and you've got a increased number of disciplinary issues, lots of soldiers doing things they really shouldn't be. And this just gets worse and worse as you go on. And as you move into the second half of the century, the army societal relationship is in a very bad way. And that's when you have the emergence of a lot of large scale agrarian protest, uh, things like the white boys, the right boys, the oak boys, the hearts of steel. There's a theme with the names. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of boys going on. Um, not a lot of female representation in these movements, clearly. Uh, well, actually there is, but that's a different story. Uh, but you have the army being called upon to deal with gatherings of hundreds or indeed thousands of protesters, uh, often resorting to violence, but there's more of uh, like sort of a crackdown or that side of things. So the, the, their role evolves and changes throughout the century. Uh, and by the time you get to the 1790s, uh, the army societal relationship, depending on who you read, is either in tatters or improving, but it's not great <laughs> for sure. So, I mean, what strikes me as really interesting here is that you talk about how the, the garrison ends up being depleted, but the mm -hmm. thing that the British government then starts to do much later on is send troops that they're going to deploy overseas to Ireland for a sort of acclimatization period before then shipping them on. So mm -hmm. what what changes, if you like? I mean, we might be jumping ahead in the story, but what, what changes in that philosophy? 
Well, I think that one of the reasons why they're able to do that comes down to reforms that are put in place in the 1770s, 1771, because prior to that, Irish regiments were actually kept at a smaller number or they had fewer soldiers in them. The idea was that you could maintain an officer corps and then some veterans, and then you could very easily supplement those with new recruits, get a fairly large regiment on the cheap, and then ship that abroad. So you had this sort of cadre system where you had a, a corps of soldiers that could be easily uh, added to. In 1770, 1771, it's decided, let's scrap this and let's just have them at the same level of as sort of soldiers on the continent, soldiers in Britain, Scotland, what have you. Uh, there's a massive recruitment drive and Ireland, basically an Irish regiment is now the same as an English regiment. But prior to that, you wouldn't have been able to do that kind of acclimatization or sending them to Ireland for a little bit. But despite that, you would have had a fairly constant rotation of soldiers into and out of Ireland, given the nature, again, of this barrack sort of system. So if a regiment was going to the East Indies, it might spend time in Ireland simply because it's closer. <laughs> and if you're sailing from Cork anyway, or West Indies rather, if you're sailing from Cork anyway, why not spend some time there uh, and do some training? So you do have a flow in and out, but I think it becomes more sort of uh, administratively, it's sort of recognizable as you get into more the 19th century. Uh, and that, that's when you get the emergence of that sort of system that you're describing there. So, I mean, you talked earlier about how, depending on who you read, People either like the the Irish army, if you if you will, the British army in Ireland, or they they absolutely loathe it. So, mm -hmm. who's sitting on on the two sides of this polarized discussion? Right. So that comes down to sort of the idea of reputation and how the army is perceived, and so much of that really goes back to the 1760s. In order to understand the 1790s, you really have to go back that far. Um, this is a period, at least in the 1760s, where the army abroad is covering itself in glory. You know, Wolf, Quebec, India, all of these uh, sort of uh, victories. <laughs> uh, in Ireland, you're dealing with massive urban unrest. And in the 1770s, the rise of a phenomenon known as hawking in urban areas. Now, hawking was essentially a terror campaign embarked on against the army by butchers. Um, so they would go behind soldiers at night, knock them to the ground, and then mutilate them by slashing their legs. Now, uh, that's designed specifically to render them useless as a soldier. It sends a message, it permanently maims them in the same way branding or removing, you know, chopping the hand off a you know, thief <laughs> sends a message. So there's over 100 cases of this uh, in the 1770s and 1780s. So the army is from in, in urban areas, it's controversial at the best of times because so, uh, incidences emerged then of soldiers hawking themselves. So you have an army that is being defeated in America and is going through a crisis of identity there. And then you have soldiers who are missing out on maybe helping or winning that battle now being attacked at home in an alien environment as well. And then layer on top of that again, the emergence of uh, the volunteer movement in Ireland who are at first established to prevent French invasion during the American War of Independence, but quickly just this grows into a new radical way to express militarism and loyalty. So the volunteer movement, you're, and you're talking tens and thousands of members across the country, they're so prevalent and professional, they're actually given charge of the defense of Ulster when there's this fear of French invasion. These are a serious group. And people begin to look at the army and think, well, why are you here? 
we do not need you as a police force. We have the volunteers. If we're going to be invaded by the French, the volunteers can take care of it. Why are you even here? So that's where a lot of the anti-militarism sort of comes into it. And it sort of peaks in 1784. Uh, there's a very embarrassing incident for the army whereby a uh, several officers get absolutely hammered, as they tended to, <laughs> and uh, they attempt to break into someone's bar. The barman, who is a volunteer, tells them to get out. They start teasing him because of, he's a volunteer, and I quote, they tweak his nose. Uh, this leads to him taking out his musket and driving them out. The soldiers then come back and say, we were joking. Then they grab the musket and throw it into the river. <laughs> so all of this back and forth leads to rioters emerging. And what's concerning is this, the officers are driven off by stones, but then attempt to summon the garrison to teach this guy a lesson. So that's the level of tension that you see sort of in the city at this stage. So the, the situation is very poor in the 1780s, particularly around 1784. And it gradually starts to piece itself back together by the 1790s, but it's a long process. Uh, and that's particularly in the urban areas, I suppose. So you were talking about how people look at the volunteers and go, look, we've, we've got our own kind of internal defence force. You know, the, the volunteers can handle that. Is that fair in terms of the quality of them? Or is that just kind of the popular perception that, look, we've got some people, they know how to use a gun, they're kind of disciplined, that, that's an army? Yeah, I think you're definitely talking about uh, style over substance. <laughs> because as much as you can't take like a lot of the british regiments are fairly veteran at this stage like they know how to fight whereas these guys they are primarily civilians they might have been part of maybe the militia previously but they've got very fancy uniforms which they've paid for themselves but are they really soldiers not no i don't think so and they're never battle tested either at least the militia as i said during that 1760 invasion proved itself to be able to erect some barricades for the soldiers to stand behind <laughs> um but the volunteers are never properly given military training and to be honest they become more of a political force so ireland at this stage is looking for free trade between it and england and uh the volunteers at for example, they hang signs on cannons saying free trade or else and park them outside of Parliament. It's that kind of intimidation factor and they become a political thing. And uh, Henry Grattan, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, comes to Parliament in his volunteer uniform. It's that sort of thing. So it, it's, it becomes very much a political thing, more so than a military. Interesting. So uh, cannons outside Parliament. Mm. That's... Uh... That's how you That's do diplomacy, nice. Zach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Um, I mean, I, we could make a comment about Napoleon, his use of cannon um, in the defence of governments, but uh, let's let's not go there because we want to stay <laughs> focused on Ireland. You mentioned that things gradually get kind of pieced back together in terms of what was mm -hmm. quite a toxic relationship across the, as you move into the 1790s. But then, of course, 1798, you mm. have the rebellion. So what does that do to the whole relationship? Well, I mean, 1798 is, it, it, it's, it, in a way, it kind of comes out of nowhere from the military's perspective, because republicanism, now, I, I think I like, uh, James Deere is probably in a better position to talk about this than I am, <laughs> um, as I deliberately stop my deep dive research just before this, because that would add like four chapters to my thesis. Um, but uh, it, republicanism is very much a fringe movement at this stage. And the fact that it gained so much support, I think they end up turning out, I think, 100,000 people, which is shocking to the army. And that kind of explains their initial successes. But the 
as far as I'm aware, it's the militia that handle most of the 1798 rebellion. So it's not really this redeeming moment for the army. Just prior, I'm fairly sure Lord Abercrombie described the army as the worst I've ever seen and more of a danger to itself than the enemy or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Um, now, he had just been transferred post and it's very much got the sort of energy of someone who was leaving a job and leaving a bad review on Glassdoor. Like it's not really <laughs> necessarily the best source. I think the army had improved at that stage, but 1798, I mean, with the Castlebar races, humiliates them, but they do eventually suppress it. And when one looks at the sort of the feeling afterwards, a lot of the ire is directed at British army. When you, when you look at the Irish Legion and French service uh, under Napoleon, a lot of their soldiers are really disappointed that they don't, don't get to tackle um, the British army in Spain. They spend most of their time fighting against guerrillas, but they really want to fight against Sir John Moore because obviously he played quite a key role in the suppression of 1798. So that kind of um, sort of, there is that feeling of it's their fault. And that will continue as we progress through the volunteer movement or not the volunteer, the uh, Republican movement for going forward. So they're quite keen to take on more. How do they mm. feel about Wellington being Anglo-Irish? Is he still part of the problem or? Yeah, I think Wellington's an interesting character to consider because there is, I think if you were Anglo-Irish and most of the British army officers who were Irish would definitely be of that sort of cast it's he's one of us and he will i guess understand what we've come through and that but for your average irishman i don't think there's ever that sense that he is in any way on our team uh i could be wrong in that but as far as i know it is he's never really seen as a figure that is fi fighting our corner i suppose he's, he's controversial for sure but when one considers how you know he does give good you know, he, he gives credit where it's due for the actions of, you know, the Inniskillings of Waterloo and that kind of thing. And obviously his role in Parliament later uh, comes to play as well. But I don't feel it's personal, I suppose. It's difficult to really nail down how they exactly feel about him. And I reckon it probably becomes more of a thing or more of an issue when he becomes prime minister. And that's when the discourse really begins. And you have comments attributed to him that he may not have actually said and, and that kind of thing yeah, the, coming the, about. That old famous one that's actually from O'Connell about uh, yeah. being born in a stable, for example. Yeah, um, I mean, this is an interesting one for me. See, when I, I first kind of thought about these, I, I was kind of thinking in terms of there being a distinction in Ireland between the kind of Catholic Irish, to give it a very crude title, mm -hmm. and then your sort of Anglo-Irish your Protestant settlers and the these different groups being quite polarized and as I've interviewed people over the course of this month I've kind of started to question that perception because I think it's probably a, a bit too simplistic mm. what, what what's your reading first of all about these different factionisms because it's interesting to listen to Katrina where she's saying that actually there's a, a move towards focusing on Irishness as opposed to this um this division based on on religion um, yeah. but equally there are these different groups within society who must have had different experiences and interactions with the army right so uh, i think that is that katrina kennedy yeah 
yeah, so that's very much a 19th century thing where one takes a step back from religion and considers sort of Irishness. When one looks at the 18th century, religion definitely plays a more of a role, particularly in the early half. Um, bearing in mind again that the fears of a Catholic uprising in support of James II, James II being Catholic, obviously that's going to be a fairly real danger. And it's Catholic Irish who are complete, who are disarmed. They are the ones the penal laws who are, are sort of legislated against. And they're the ones who flee to France and fight against the English in French service. So at least up until 1745, with the sort of death of the Jacobite movement as on the field of Culloden in 1746-5, um, that's, I, I think it's fair to make the distinction between Protestant and Catholic. They would have very different experiences. The Protestant population are probably enjoying a more positive relationship as these are our protectors. You'll have instances of soldiers marrying into uh, sort of wealthy families. Even the rankers are given opportunities to teach children for a few extra pennies on the side, that kind of thing. Uh, However, I think from 1750, a better division in terms of experience might be between rural and urban because it's probably a little bit more nuanced to look at wealth than religion. And the rural experience is very different to the urban experience. You've got, as I've mentioned, all those various boys, white boys, right boys, etc. And the army is called in to suppress these. And these are fighting for fairly basic land reform or that they want just essentially, you know, <laughs> they want what's due to them and it's the military that are called out to fight them or fight against them typically dragoon regiments or private dragoon regiments are established uh, one uh landowner attempts to set up his own hazar regiment because he thinks people are more likely to join if i make the uniform fancy uh <laughs> he is told no uh set up a proper regiment and eventually he does but it's this kind of um vigilantism combined with military suppression. So the rural relationship is unlikely to be fully positive. Now this does evolve um, from the 1760s, 1780s, it's a different story. And when you come to the right boy movement, you have the military not turning guns on them, but instead opting for a show of force. So they take 2000 men out of Dublin and march them through the countryside with cannon uh, in tow, just to show them that we will deal with you if we have to. And that actually seems to work. So there's an evolution of strategy there and a change in that relationship. And there seems to be a degree of respect established there. In the city, much of what the army does is riot suppression, tacking, tackling criminals, chasing them down, dealing with factional violence. Uh, Dublin in this period is riven by factional divisions, particularly there's two groups called the Ormond and Liberty Boys. They bash each other <laughs> fairly consistently throughout the century and the army is called it. It's basically the third gang that is dragged in to suppress these guys. So I think in the, in the city and in the countryside, you have two very distinct uh, sort of uh, views of the military. Um, but whether it comes down to Catholic Protestant, it's difficult to really gauge. It's a bit worth bearing in mind as well that you're more likely to have Protestants in the army, obviously, because it was illegal to recruit Catholics, but really there shouldn't have been any Irish in the army at all. It was illegal to recruit Irishmen for much of the century. The idea being you need the Protestants here to keep the Catholics in check. Uh, obviously, we don't want to arm the Catholics. That's terrifying. <laughs> so if you, and this obviously doesn't come to pass because we know that there was at least 25, 30% numbers in throughout the 18th century, uh, but that recruitment is strictly clandestine or strictly done during conflicts and was seen as an act of desperation. For most of the time, you don't want Irishmen in the army. So it is still this distinct alien body. It's not our army. It's an army that is here.
if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting because it takes me back to something else that came up with uh, Katrina Kennedy's interview where we were talking about the extent to which Ireland kind of becomes a laboratory for empire. Uh, this is a, a phrase that um, I'm not sure who said it, but it's, it's not Katrina's original phrase, but it, I thought it was a really nice way of describing it. Do, do you see that? Do you kind of look at how Britain operates in terms of trying to quash unrest in Ireland and, and see parallels in, in what's used elsewhere in the empire? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I think that you you could probably draw parallels from a lot of what the, the military experience with barracks uh, in particular and those that those elements the sort of integration among population side of things you probably could draw uh, distinctions but at the same time Ireland is in this bizarre limbo in terms of legislation where a lot of the laws such as for example England you, you have a riot act which goes back I can't remember how far um, but it's just well established for most of the 18th century there isn't one in Ireland for most of it uh, so there is this unwillingness to try some of the more repressive maybe or denial of freedom legislation however you want to phrase it in Ireland um, I think this does change with the act of union because now that it's officially part of you know, uh, the kingdoms or kingdom now, singular, um, it's easier to sort of enact that kind of uh, legislation. But there's a fear, I guess, and because Ireland has its own parliament as well, it has a degree of autonomy and it doesn't necessarily allow itself to be that laboratory for at least a while in the, the, the century. Now, when I say autonomy, Irish Parliament still could not pass laws under Poynings Law without first running it by Westminster. So it's not really autonomy, but it's at least a shade of it. Um, it would be interesting to look into uh, how they treat or the penal laws compared to maybe some of the treatment of natives, perhaps, or Native Americans and, and during the sort of French Indian War sort of era and see if there's any sort of disarming or anything like that. But that's not something I'm too familiar with. <laughs> but I now just have an idea. <laughs> so, Fair enough. Um, there's, there's, there's the next book sorted for you. Yeah, that's my, that's my weekend. <laughs> so how do, and obviously you can't kind of generalise about everybody's experience, but how, how today do folks from Ireland remember this period, the 1790s, the Napoleonic Wars? Because the British 
obviously aren't hugely popular during the period. We've thankfully had the Good Friday Agreement and so on, and that's managed to stabilise um, relations in Ireland. But it always strikes me that there can't be vast amounts of love for the Brits, given the complexity of, of the history. So how is this period remembered, or is it just kind of eclipsed by things like the Easter uprising and so on? Yeah, I don't, I, I, as I say, I don't want to put words in um, the mouth of the nation, but to be honest, 1798, people are aware of. Uh, there are statues of pikemen dotted around the southeast uh, in various towns, and I think probably Cork as well. They, they tend to rebel a lot. Um, but I think a lot of the sort of romanticism of it is it is more of a 19th century phenomenon. Uh, when you have the rise of cultural nationalism and the identity of Irishness and that sort of thing, it, that does come to be. Nowadays, I mean, people might be aware of the Act of Union. You're unlikely to have people knowing who Wellington is um, unless they are a historian. It's not like in England, I suppose, where I'm at, you've got a lot of pubs named after the man <laughs> in some capacity. There, there isn't that like popular history element to him very much. He's not ingrained in the social conscious, uh, consciousness. Whereas 1798, you will have songs written about it and folk music and you know there might be a pub named after that. Um, so he, it's kind of forgotten for a lot of it. The, the entire 18th century is typically just categorized as the penal laws. Um, and it's kind of easy to just think, oh, it's one of those centuries of Irish-English negative relationships. Uh, I don't think it would, at the time, might be a different story, um, particularly around the Act of Union, because the Act of Union was supposed to bring about Catholic emancipation and get rid of the penal laws. At least that was the carrot that was dangled in front of Catholics uh, to support it and you know the clergy and that. Now, this was obviously lies, um, but nonetheless, I think at the time you would have seen a degree of support for the Act of Union, obviously not among Republicans, but for among the general population, maybe. And that might also explain why so many Irish then sign up to join the army of the Duke of Wellington, right? Because uh, you've got the establishment, things like the Connacht Rangers and this kind of thing. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky question. But it is very much a, I think, the looking back on it takes place more in the 19th than the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, and that, the Irish diaspora seem particularly enamored with it. Uh, one of the regiments in the American Civil War that forms the Irish Brigade uh, under Mayor um, or Mar sorry, uh, it declares itself the 88th New York. Now that's not how the numerical system worked, but it wanted to be the 88th New York in sympathy with the Connacht Rangers. So I think people sort of look back on the Napoleonic period, maybe 50 years or so more than they would now, because I guess it's more living memory at that stage, but it's not really a feature here. So is it much not to my chagrin? Well, I know that's the crying shame of what we do, isn't it? People like to just kind of forget about about uh, the stuff that fascinates us. So is it not yeah. taught in schools then, this period? Uh, no, you would typically start, you might get the act of union, maybe, um, but most of what is taught starts deep in the 19th century. You're talking land war, the famine, Parnell, O'Connell, 
these these figures uh, and it's all setting the stage more so for what comes in the 1910s 1920s uh, but really the run-up to it is pretty much ignored you might have a chapter on napoleon <laughs> and the french revolution but really it's it's not really taught all that well waterloo might be mentioned maybe yes, but uh, the, the irish contribution isn't for sure no. that's uh that's not dissimilar to what we have over here which is you know you might get trafalgar mentioned you might vaguely get waterloo but really it's it's just kind of pushed to the side let's jump it straight into empire um, and mm. slavery um i want to take it back to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier which was about the army and and wellington and and the interplay between the two because for me there's this interesting dichotomy where the english aren't popular in ireland the english are fearful of irish descent and mm. yet you've got as we've said and as as i discussed with jim anywhere between 25 to 30 percent of the army being irish yeah why i mean i put this question to jim you know is this just desperation is it is it something about the character of the irish people that makes folks think that actually you know it's quite useful to have um some irish lads in the army what's your reading of it uh well i think i mean we've got a good history of selling ourselves as soldiers as soldiers i should specify <laughs> let's keep things pc um but i think that uh we've got a, lot, a long history of fighting for pretty much every country in europe which goes back i mean irishmen supported uh tom simmel's attempt <laughs> like uh, at the crown at one stage like it goes back a, a long way uh there's reports in spanish military history of irishmen being very cheap to run that you only need to give them one meal a day and they will march for the rest of it so we've got quite a good sort of legacy in that regard and when one looks at the 18th century yes it was illegal to recruit irishmen but the irishmen that were recruited for the French service, cover themselves in glory at the beginning. Like the War of the Spanish Secession is amazing for Irish prestige. If one looks at the exploits of sort of Clare's regiment, Lee's, Donington, the various uh, Irish brigade regiments in French service, at battles like Blenheim, Malplaquet, they're the ones who actually hold the line while the French run away, if you want to be really cliche about it. Um, and somewhere uh, uh, or the Spanish secession historian is cursing my name at this stage, but he knows I'm right. <laughs> Nonetheless, when one moves further into the 18th century and that because the Jacobite cause dies off and you've got less French recruitment, Ireland's like, for the average person, Ireland's boring as hell. I mean, if you don't want to be an agricultural farmer or a laborer in a city, there isn't really much scope, particularly you know, they're, they're, you're still kind of second-class citizens, so enlistment isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world if you want adventure. Uh, and in terms of economy, Ireland is very poor. Um, by the 1800s, if you want a comparison to a modern economy, England is about the same sort of economic level as Egypt would be today. Ireland is the same as Somalia. Like, this is a seriously poor nation. So obviously you're going to have people wanting to enlist. It's also seen as a sign of loyalty too. Uh, in this period where 
whether or not the Irish are good little subjects and being subservient is always up in the air. If you join the army, it's a surefire way of saying, yes, I am loyal, particularly for the officers. So there's a lot of Irish, Anglo-Irish wanting to join the army to sort of really cement that and show, yes, I am. I, I do believe in the cause and I, I want to fight for the king and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of it's come down to boredom too. <laughs> I'm sure that that cropped up with uh, uh, Jimmy as well and how it's just, you know, the, there is nothing to do here. And if you can fight, even if it's in a red coat, even if you have to be recruited illegally. And the way they go about recruiting them was always very entertaining to me. Um, they would bring often ship them to Scotland and sign them up in Scotland. So they are officially registered as Scottish recruits. But then they'll bring them back to Ireland and say, OK, we can sign up legally now. You don't have to worry about it. The only loophole on that was when they only spoke Irish. But, you know, we can gloss over that and sort of move on from that, I guess, in the official reports. The desertion postings in particular often will specify what accent they speak in, and usually it's Irish. Interesting. Do they do, in your period, do they do the, the classic uh, thing of getting them drunk as well before they slip from the king's showing? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, especially um, the French recruiters who come over because all of, all of what they're doing is very, very under the radar and, and illegal and they're at risk of being shot if they get caught. So they will usually use a bar as sort of their recruiting office with a friendly sympathizing barman on a sympathizing road. And there's a really hilarious case study I've, I've come across um, where the barman is arrested and the recruitment officer is arrested and they're testified against by this one person. But the entire street then testifies against the person who testifies against them because he's known to be a rat and just he's a huge fan of like the British or whatever. And he's just he's <laughs> just seen as this uh, loyalist scumbag who's undermining the Jacobite cause. And he's like, he's a man of no character at all. So that definitely does play like a, a factor in it as well. Because um, it all has to be kind of clandestine. And if you get someone drunk, they're more likely to join. And they will there's a fear among the recruits that they're going to be shipped to like the east indies or the west indies uh and the people will say like oh if i drink this let it be poisoned if it if i'm not lying to you or whatever it's it's all very shady and very illegal and obviously ireland alcohol it's going to be a beautiful relationship um i don't know if you've come across it in your own studies but there's a it's a doctor's report in Ireland as to why all of the regiments in Ireland have really bad sores on their legs due to excessive whiskey consumption. It doesn't necessarily do the stereotype much favours uh, and a lot of them are fairly new recruits. So yeah, definitely plays a factor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got massive issues of alcoholism in the entire army, haven't you? I remember there was a study recently of Gibraltar and the efforts to close down bars there and just the utterly impossible situation that you generate where you've got these alcohol dependent men who are given alcohol through their rations and uh, yeah just just in, being incapable of managing the situation and just sort of falling apart essentially because these these men are going pretty much cold turkey yeah yeah and uh, you have instances of people setting up bars next to barracks because again you have barracks in cities they're obviously the fancy building made of stone. There's probably some money in there. Um, so they'll set up sutlers and stuff all around them. And the soldiers have a very easy access. And again, at the start of the century, they're tipping over whiskey stills. I'm reckoning they're filling their canteens before they do that. <laughs> I think that wouldn't necessarily be a stretch to say. It really um, 
and obviously Ireland, the, the stereotype of us being alcoholics um, exists at this point. Uh, that when one looks at the diaries of various officers, particularly in the 1780s, um, one suggests that the reason everyone drinks in Ireland is because our stories are so boring that they have to be told to drunkards for them to be entertaining. Uh, the other is that potatoes are so easy to grow that you've got nothing else to do for the rest of the day, so you might as well make and drink whiskey. So, the, again, not necessarily the most accurate <laughs> hypotheses, but the people are trying to figure us out, if nothing else. Yeah, that's um, bizarre, but uh, the Brits not necessarily always known for their enlightened attitudes to other nations. No. <laughs> I'm interested in what you say about some Irish soldiers serving in, in armies across Europe, but particularly the French during this period. What can you tell us about Irish troops in, in the French army during the, Revol the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars? Okay, so French Revolution, you have the disbandment of the old Ancien Regime Irish Brigade. Uh, I think actually a lot of them are offered service in England. Um, that is something for you to look at, because <laughs> that is more your period. Um, but yeah, no, I think that the the old sort of, um, particularly Clare's regiment, uh, who I did my master's thesis on, they are disbanded around this period, and some of them are given offers to come back to fight for the English, or they just in, like integrate themselves into French society. But to be honest, at that stage, much of the Ancien Regime Irish Brigade wasn't Irish. Uh, it was getting increasingly difficult to recruit soldiers, particularly as recruitment in England was becoming more accepted. So you didn't need to go to France to join an army and get that wage and have your adventure. You could do it locally and not also worry about getting shot for treason. <laughs> um, coming into the age of Napoleon, now I'm aware that Napoleon does have an Irish legion commanded by a man called Bernard McSheedy. Uh, they wore green, they had a special green flag with four harps, one in each corner. Uh, and as I mentioned, they fight in Spain. Uh, a lot of them are veterans, or at least had serious sympathies with the 1798 rebellion, hence that animosity with Sir John Moore, as I mentioned. And they're transferred to the East in and around 1812, and they suffer horrific casualties on that campaign. And there's a really good interaction between a, I think it's, it, it might have been Ney, one of the marshals and an Irish soldier. And the Irish soldier is being chastised by the marshal for not retreating yet. And the Irish soldier said, no, no, I, I had to. You don't understand. There was this Cossack who shot at me twice, so I needed to get him. And the marshal, well, did you get him? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, he fell off his horse. I think I got him. <laughs> so there is, you know, it's still that Irish charm, I suppose, that, that, that wit. Um, I guess it's bilingual, if nothing else. Um, they suffered as a fairly horrific casualties. I don't think they are involved specifically with the invasion, but I think they cover the retreat. Um, but I haven't looked too much into that campaign. But to be honest, it seems to be a fairly common theme with Napoleon's allies at that stage where they come out of Russia with 90% casualties or something horrific like that. So it's no surprise that this little Irish legion that's established is also you know, fairly wellied. Uh, they're not, they don't feature in the 100 days um, at all. And to be honest, I think by 1814, they're probably disbanded or at least folded into something else. I think it is more uh, up until 1812. That's when they, they are active. Um, and yeah, it's, that's, I suppose, yet another instance of the, the Irish serving abroad, in, be it in French or otherwise service. You know, we, we get around, <laughs> if nothing else. Yeah, as you say, casualties during the uh, Moscow 
campaign were, were just horrific. So uh, it wouldn't be surprising if they were kind of disbanded and, and redistributed uh, in the wake yeah. of that. In 1800, we've touched on this a little bit already, you get the Act of Union. Um, right. so, so how does that change things? Well, actually, first, how how do the Irish feel about being suddenly told that they're part of the United Kingdom? I'm guessing the attitudes sort of vary. Well, I guess, again, it comes down to what part of the country you're from and where, who you sympathize with. Uh, if you felt that 1798 was a just cause, this is the worst thing to ever happen to you. Um, if you were terrified during the 1798 rebellion and... It's important, again, to, to drive home, and this is something a lot of Irish historians can sometimes stumble over, uh, and Irish historical students, <laughs> says he bitterly, is that nationalism does not necessarily equate to Irishness at this stage. It is very, very possible for you to be a loyalist to the crown and still consider yourself completely Irish, um, and you know a staunch Irishman uh, at that. So if you are a loyalist and you believe that you know Ireland should be you know, it's governed by a king, be it king of England, but the king, uh, king, king of the kingdom of Ireland. Um, you might not necessarily view it as the worst thing in the world. And as I said earlier, for Catholics, a lot of them are promised emancipation as a result of this. So they might have actively supported and campaigned for it. Uh, for the Irish Parliament themselves, it's important again to bear in mind that the Irish Parliament votes itself out of existence. Um, there are two acts of union. <clears throat> there's the one the Irish Parliament signed and there's the one the UK Parliament signed, but it was up to the Irish Parliament to eliminate themselves from the picture. So if you were of a certain group, you would be happily to retire with your massive bribe you were given <laughs> um, to allow active union to even take place. If you're of another group, um, you know, you're, you're sort of your, your grattans and the like, you might have, you know, been quite irritated at this and, you know, you the campaign then begins anew for home rule and that's that happens almost immediately in the same way that i'm sure that there are now uh campaigners for brexit to be undone in the uk uh you will always have an immediate campaign being launched and it's much the same here with the active union where there is a movement straight away to change things um but it's this i suppose it is difficult to fully nail down how everyone feels about it. I think for the soldier or the would-be soldier, it makes things a lot easier. You no longer have to worry about being of the Irish military establishment because that's gotten rid of. So no longer is your pay coming from Dublin Castle. However sporadic that is, it's now all centralized in you know, the UK. Uh, you've got the establishment of things like defensibles. Um, so defense is you know adjusted significantly and there might be a degree of security to it as well uh clearly the situation did not work in 1798 so something has to be done to remedy that and if active union allows for more security perhaps you'd agree with it um those who don't agree with it i mean they turn into you know what you see later on with the fight and as active union does not manifest itself with Catholic emancipation, even post 1815. That's when you get the real emergence of your O'Connells and these characters who uh, want to change things. But at the time, difficult to really nail down if people are fully, incredibly positive or incredibly ne negative. I reckon there's both parties probably fairly strong. A lot of people stuck in the middle, in the gray area, because nothing's black and white. No, absolutely. I, I sometimes wish that some Napoleonic commentators would, would realize that there is gray areas, uh, there are gray areas and nuances to, to be seen in 
pretty much everything. But anyway, little rant aside. So the Act of Union, in your opinion, does it work in terms of what it's trying to achieve of aiming to, to a degree, bring um, the, the Irish and English, Scottish and Welsh together, but also kind of serving as a bit of a punishment to more effectively keep the Irish under control? Uh, I think it is an uh, yes. I think it, you're, the the idea of it being a reaction to what has taken place and kind of a punishment that that's probably the argument that bears out, in my opinion, anyway, because it does abolish the last of the penal laws, technically, but it's essentially replaced them with a different form of governance. You are now have no autonomy in Ireland. It is all being governed by Westminster, so it's a big slap on the wrist, as much for the sort of ascendancy, Protestant ascendancy, who had been in charge, because it's clear that they cannot control things. And there's no, there, there have been movements towards union before, but it's, it's really the failings of in and around 1798 that sort of justify its existence. So it, I think considering it as a punishment is definitely um, the best way to go about that. Yeah, it, it, is it effective? I mean, it's still active today, right? In a way, I would, you're still looking at a situation where six counties are still considered part of the the union between you know the United Kingdom. So, in in a way, it's an incredibly effective piece of legislation. Um, and that's not me being nationalist or one way or the other. It's just a statement of fact. I don't. I, yeah, I think it's it does work. People do feel more ties to the crown. It's easier to. Brain, not brainwash, but sort of manipulate people into believing that they're more closely associated with the crown. And I mean, by, you know, 1730s, you've got O'Connell coming about. So there's a very quick changeover and a very quick reaction to it, if nothing else. Andrew, this has been brilliant. Um, I, I was looking forward to this, um, <laughs> a really different perspective. Uh, and one where, to be honest, I I don't know a, a great deal, and I'm not sure that came across in in the questions that I was asking. But <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, thank you very much for for jo joining me. Uh, this has been great. Thank you for having me. That was great fun. Thank you. That was Andy Dorman joining me to discuss the British Army in Ireland in the late 1700s. You can follow Andy on Twitter at Andy Dorman, and that's spelt with a double N and one O. Before you go, there are loads of ways that you can support this podcast for free. Remember to drop a like, subscribe and share with friends. You can also help to fund The Napoleon Assist at no cost to yourself, whilst picking up a colossal discount on military history books at Naval and Military Press. Just click on the link that's in the description, shop as normal, and The Napoleon Assist will get 10% without you paying a penny more. A big thank you as ever to my patrons, whose support helps to cover the production costs of this podcast, if you'd like to join them, get an exclusive discount of 10% at Pen and Sword Books and contribute to the aim of taking the Napoleon Assist weekly, you can find out more at patreon.com forward slash the Napoleon Assist. A particularly big thanks to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, an anonymous Canadian, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Jamie Kingston, Rory Muir, James Bevan, Lucy Tatner, and Jim Deary. As ever, you can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory, and the conversation continues in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. Join me next time 
when I will be bringing you the final instalment of Irish Month as I reprise the Voices Oral History project that came to you on the podcast in June and use it to shine a light on the Irish experience. Next week we'll therefore see a special Voices from Ireland episode as I guide you through a series of recordings that have been sent in by listeners of The Napoleonicist who have picked some of their favourite anecdotes by or about the Irish during the Napoleonic Wars. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleonicist. Take care my friends, stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.